0: Go ahead and take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we are today. We're going to move through this chapter a little bit. Galatians chapter 3. Here's the key concept for today there is no such thing as a gift you must earn. No such thing as a gift you must earn. However, the Galatians were being fooled into thinking that that is exactly their situation in Jesus Christ. The gift is something they must earn. In fact, the word fool or foolish comes up a bit in this chapter, chapter 3 of Galatians. It reminds me that people do foolish things. People have always done foolish things. But these days when people do foolish things, they are around other people with their cell phones and those cell phones have cameras and the cameras can catch those foolish things in action. And the photos are all around us. I, I, I... I copied a few of the foolish uh, activities that I found uh, on the internet just recently, and I think you'll agree that these things are foolish. Let's just watch some, see some of those pictures. There's, okay, that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Go, go to the next, next slide. Look at that. How, how do you get down from there? I don't know. Go to the next slide. OK, hold on. Just pause. Do you see that there's a table right behind them? Okay, go to the next slide. OK, that's a trampoline on t- right next to the edge of that multi-story house, or whatever it is. How about this one? Double-shot liquors and guns drive through? None of those look like good ideas to me. People do foolish things. And in our passage today, Paul's going to point out that what the Galatians are doing, how they're beginning to think is is foolish. Let's recap. From chapters 1 and 2, we've learned that there are false teachers in Galatia that are teaching that Paul, when he was with them, did not give them the whole truth. They claim that not only must you believe in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, but also you must follow the Jewish law, the Jewish rituals, And for the men, this meant circumcision in order to be saved. And Paul says in Galatians 3, that's just plain foolish. So let's read the first five verses. You follow along. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit that you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if really it has been for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Paul is saying, I remember you guys doing so well. What happened? Let's take a look back and and recall how things were at first. He says, at first you were able to visualize and understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. At At first you saw the Holy Spirit at work in your midst. At first there were demonstrations of the power of God evident in your fellowship. You actually saw miracles take place. At first you were so thrilled to be a part of what God was doing that you were actually willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And now you're telling me that you now believe that none of that was real, you're ready to toss all of that out, even just because some people that you don't even know have arrived and are convincing you differently. You're contradicting what I taught you about Jesus Christ. You're contradicting what you experienced because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a central piece of what Paul is is explaining to them here. And that is the fact that they experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst already. And now they're starting to deny that. In the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3, three times he mentions the Holy Spirit. He was at work among you. Go back and remember how He worked. It's important for us to realize how the Holy Spirit works. It's important for us to identify the work of the Holy Spirit so that not not only can we understand what He does in our lives, but also what He wants to do in the lives of those people around us who don't know Christ as Savior, so that we can pray rightly for the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about that a little bit this morning because Jesus, prior to His ascension, He gathered His apostles around Him and He made sure that they understood the way the Holy Spirit was going to work after He departed. It takes place in John 16, and there He says this in verse 8. Speaking about the Holy Spirit, He says, When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. These are verses that we need to understand if we will rightly comprehend how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a Christian and how the Spirit works to to bring those who are outside of Christ to faith in Jesus Christ. God wants us to know this, and He wants us to understand that the initial work of the Holy Spirit is a threefold conviction. You heard Jesus describe that conviction. This is the first thing that Spirit does in the world and does in our lives, bringing a conviction to us. And the New Collegiate, uh, Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines conviction this way. It says, conviction is the state of being convinced either of error or of truth. In other words, Jesus is saying what the Holy Spirit wants to do first for us is to convince us that a few things are true. And these are the things He wants to convince us about. He wants us to convince convince us about the reality of sin, the possibility of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment. Those three things the Holy Spirit wants to drive home in our, in our mind as we approach coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And each of us who is a born-again believer today has come under that convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You can't come to know Christ without this work happening in your heart. You can study all the theology you want. You can read the Bible from cover to cover. You can go to Bible college and seminary and earn a bunch of degrees. You can explore paths of mystics and the writings of great minds. You can be logical and smart and sensitive, moral and kind. And still, if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing these convictions to our heart, none of us would choose Christ as Savior. See, conviction is always the first loving work that the Spirit does in our hearts. It's tough love, but it is love nonetheless. And this is the way the Spirit works. And He first convicts us of guilt in regards to sin. That first nudge, I have a problem. He impresses us with the reality of sin in our own life and with the badness of sin. See, we have a nature that leans towards committing sinful deeds. Each of us has rebelled against God in that way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says it very clearly in Romans. And not only that, each of us is in that state of rebellion before we come to know Jesus where we are committing the greatest sin of all, and that is refusal to surrender to God. That's our state prior to faith. And prior to the the prodding of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we think things like this. We think, well, I'm not such a bad person. You know, I I know people who are way worse than me, and they say somewhere in the Bible, God is love. I must be good to go. We don't worry about it outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit begins to take hold of our heart with a sense of conviction, the reality of our lostness comes over us. There's almost a desperation to realize, I am far from God. I am a sinner. I am guilty before my Creator. That's where conviction of the reality of sin begins. doesn't come because we just figure it out on our own. It comes leading to saving faith because the Spirit is prodding our hearts, convincing us that this is true. But then there's that second work, that work, that second part of this conviction, and that is the conviction that there is the possibility of righteousness. It's not all just doom and gloom. It's not all just hopelessness and helplessness. There is this this awareness that it's possible for me to be made right. It is possible uh, for for me to be a righteous person in the sight of God. I can have a right relationship with Jesus Christ and, and be forgiven and cleansed so that the Father sees me with the righteousness of Christ, not myself. The desire for that is also the convincing work of the Spirit. But there's a third aspect to this convincing or conviction, and he says he also convicts regarding judgment. It means the Spirit rounds out this convicting work so that we begin to understand judgment is certain. We begin to understand this all matters There will be a day when I will stand before a holy God and give an account. One day we will all stand before a holy God and give an account. Prior to the Spirit's conviction, we think God grades on a sliding scale. We we imagine some big bell curve. And I'm somewhere in the middle, so I guess I'm good. I mean, I'm not as bad as that creepy guy down the street, right? I'm usually able to talk myself out of problems. I'm pretty good on my feet. I think fast. I think I'll take my chances. That's prior to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit comes on us with conviction, we see things from the perspective of the Almighty. And the Spirit moves us to understand the reality of sin, the possibility of righteousness, the certainty of judgment. As we soften our heart to the hearing of the gospel, that's what the Spirit is doing. That's the first work of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the second work of the Holy Spirit, and that is transformation. Regeneration is the Bible word for it. It's when He changes us from the inside out. He takes that conviction that He is prodding us with in our hearts, and when we respond to Jesus and turn in faith, it is the Spirit who works that change in our lives. Titus 3.5 says this, It's an important verse about the work of the Spirit. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Very important for us to understand this, that the change agent for what happens inside of us when we turn to Christ is not you. You don't save yourself. It's not done by the force of your belief. I'm going to really believe. I'm going to believe really, really hard. I'm going to really have faith. If that's how you got saved, It would just be by works. Only the works would be inside. The works would be intellectual. No, salvation is not a matter of something we do. It's a matter of being reborn, regenerated by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. As you turn to Jesus in faith, the Spirit is the one who by grace goes in and gives us a regenerated heart, enables us to be made new. All of that is the work of grace that God does in us. You don't save yourself. Parentheses. This part is for free. This is why eternal security is real. Because the security of the believer, because your salvation is something that God does. And you can't undo what God does. So the Holy Spirit changes us on the inside. That's the second work that He does as we're coming, as we're being transformed to Christ. And then there's a third work, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit by His indwelling presence. It happens as you are being regenerated. When He makes you into a new creation in Christ, He takes up residence within you, and in that moment, you are made new. We call that entrance of the Holy Spirit into your life the baptism of the Spirit. And it happens the moment you say yes to Jesus as Savior. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul writes it this way. We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Very important word there, into. This is how you come into the body, to the baptism of the Spirit. Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There is no such thing as a born-again Christian without the Holy Spirit you already have the Holy Spirit within. The question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Are we fully surrendered to His influence? He is involved all along the way by faith, bringing us to faith by conviction, transforming us by His grace, indwelling us and gifting us so that we know our roles in the kingdom of God by His baptism and His presence. Now, Paul is remembering what happened in Galatia. And he's saying, folks, all of this happened among you. And you have evidence of this right before your very eyes. God showed himself strong as you were transformed by the power of grace. So what happened? That's Galatians chapter 3. What happened? And what happened was the Galatians are starting to fall for what we might see as a very modern heresy. And that heresy is summed up in this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves means I I have to get God to notice me. I have to get on God's good side. I have to impress Him and then and only then when I'm doing the work then He will love me. Paul says you were given the riches of salvation by the Spirit without achievement, without earning, only faith. And it's been this way from the very start. It's all about faith. And in case you question that, he says, let me take you way back to the beginning of where this all started. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's go all the way back to Father Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. Paul says the reason that the Israelite people are a people, the reason that this nation was formed to be God's people, to incubate the Messiah that will bring the gospel for the salvation of the world, the reason that all of this started was because God found Abraham to be a person of faith. And it's a simple formula. It wasn't about the law. It was about this. God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham took God at his word and chose to believe the promise and God credited Abraham with righteousness based on that faith. And Paul is just quoting the book of Genesis here. Genesis 15, 6. Abram, he's called Abram at that time. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. God promised him that the entire world will be blessed through him. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, uh, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's God's promise, God's covenant with Abraham. Looking forward to the time when through Abraham's, the nation that will be formed under Abraham, the the Messiah will come to the world. This world-encompassing blessing is completed in Jesus and His work on the cross. And now all who are followers of Jesus, whether you are Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you are part of the family of Abraham, he's saying. Galatians 3.7 says this, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Being a child of Abraham is not the same as being Jewish, in other words. Being a child of Abraham involves all those who believe what God is doing through His Messiah. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. So Paul says to the Galatians, you're already part of the family that counts, and you enter this family by faith, not achievement. Galatians 3:10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. When you're looking at verse 10 in chapter 3 of of Galatians, the key word there is everything everything. Law only brings condemnation, and this is why. Because the law is all or nothing. Once you break it, it's broke. All or nothing. No one can obey everything written in the law for a lifetime. No one has ever done it. No one ever will do it. No human being can accomplish that and it was never the plan that this was the way that we come to, the, come to God and be saved forever. God would all, always planned for that to be about grace. So you can imagine now that Paul, as he's writing the Galatian Christians, trying to pull them back from the brink of going backwards into the Jewish law, you can imagine them asking a question. Well, if it's always been about faith and it's always been about grace, why do we even have the law? What is that all about? And Paul answers that uh, himself. He, he understands that question will come. Verse 24, he says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. The law was our supervisor for a period of time. And as, as the law was our supervisor, what happened was it made obvious and visible the invisible rebellion that's happening within our lives, within our hearts. And it made obvious the absolute need that we have for grace. It laid it out in black and white. I, I heard a man use an illustration this way. He said, you know, you can go into your doctor And he could give you a prescription and tell you to do certain things uh, to, to make you healthy. And you can sit there in that examination room and reject everything he says. And he would never know. You could walk out of that room being very respectful to your doctor and in your mind rebelling against all the suggestions that he had in order to maintain your health. And that doctor would never know. But if he were to take a pad, a prescription pad, and write out a prescription and say, I want you to go fill this at the pharmacy and take one of these pills uh, every morning, and then you were to take that prescription, crumple it up, throw it in the garbage right in front of the doctor, then he knows that you are rejecting his advice, you are rejecting his prescriptions. That's what the law served in in terms of making obvious the fact that there is a God who has standards. There is a God who who seeks righteousness, who is holy, and we will never be able to keep those standards on our own strength left to ourselves. It, It was brought to the surface black and white, laid out plainly in the law. The law demonstrated that something needs to be done because we can't get where we need to go by ourselves. But it is the gospel that tells us God has done for us what needs to be done. So there has always been in the mind of God, in the heart of God, a transition that would come from uh, from law to faith. And that transition would lead us to Jesus Christ. The law can't give you new life. Paul is saying it can only point out your need for new life and the source of that new life is Jesus Christ forever and God has always had that in mind and so Paul is saying Galatians how can you be so foolish one paraphrase says it this way oh you idiot Galatians (laughs) kind of strong but that's exactly the way Paul feels Don't give the law power over your life. Give Jesus power over your life. So for us today, Christ followers today, you have been set free by grace. You have been set free to follow a gracious Savior. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and now enabled, free to engage your gifts, to fulfill your role in the kingdom of God. Paul says to us across the centuries, rejoice and be glad for what you have in Jesus because all of this is God's gift of love that He crafted in eternity past and He had you in mind. So hold on to grace. It's all His work, not ours. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for the reminder from the pen of the Apostle Paul that there is nothing that we can do to earn the gift that You give. That ours is simply to believe, to turn to You in faith. And as we do that, all this gracious work of the Spirit will overwhelm us. And Lord, we pray that we recall our own salvation experience. For those of us who know Christ as Savior here today, we pray that we will rehearse in our minds the change and transformation that has happened and see in our lives the transformation that may still have to happen, whether in attitude or action, so that we become more and more the example of regenerated persons. But Lord, that's what we want to be. That's what we need to be. And we can't be that without Your, your power and without Your touch. So thank You, as we've been reminded in our communion elements today, thank You that You shed Your blood, Lord Jesus. You broke Your body taking on Yourself the punishment for the sin that we deserved, that You took our guilt away from us. And thank You, Lord, as we say yes to faith, You graciously transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Enable us to be the glad recipients of Your work of grace and to spread the message of hope. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to leave this place, uh, some to classes and others to the work of the day, but I'll I'll remind you that uh, we have prayer counselors next to the organ by the prayer table. They will wait for you, and they will pray with and for you as you slip forward, so you do that after the benediction. So let's stand together, and we'll, we'll pray the benediction, but before we do that, we're going to sing a song, okay? And it goes like this. and exchange it someday for a crown. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when face to face with You, we will rejoice in Your presence. And now, Lord, we pray that we would be Your ambassadors in the week ahead, representatives of Your love, Your mercy, and Your grace. We intercede today once again for our world. We pray that your hand of mercy would come down on those who are struggling so deeply today. Remind us of how blessed we are and enable us to do what we can to bless others. Dismiss us with your mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for